Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to the 23rd Psalm. Psalm 23 is where the message God has for us is going to come today. Please follow along with me as I read it to you. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows." Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. And it is in the reality of hardships and struggles and uncertainty that the writer of Psalm 23, David, the king of Israel, a man after the Lord's own heart, wrote this psalm under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The tone of this psalm is a combination of praise and thanksgiving, faith and certainty. And as you know, although David was chosen by God to be the king of his people, Israel, um, he experienced many trials, conflicts, turmoil, hardships, and losses of, 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 uh, throughout his life. Uh, many Bible scholars believe that David wrote Psalm 23 toward the end of his life. Um, David died at age 70, and they believe that Psalm 23 was written in, during Absalom's re rebellion, and David was 67 at that time. So this is right toward the end of his life that this is being written. And so when David wrote this psalm, he had experienced the vast majority of the difficulties in his life. And, you know, that information and the location of Psalm 23 within the Psalter are helpful for us in establishing the authorial, the authorial intent and the context of this Psalm. Recall the intent of the Psalter is to take us from wherever we find ourselves in life into right worship and praise of God. That's the intent of the Psalms. When we think of the Psalms, we tend to think about Psalms of praise. But did you know that the first time that the word hallelujah appears in the Psalms, it's in Psalm number 104, verse 35. And that's over two thirds of the way through the Psalter. And this is likely because God, in writing and compiling the Psalter through its human authors, knew that the reality and existence of sin in the world would necessitate us being brought from the brokenness that sin causes um, into the joy that is found only through the salvation that is of the Lord. And that's why the five books of the Psalter are often called the second Torah. 
uh, Torah in two places, as it's often called. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the Torah of the mind, and the Psalms are the Torah of the heart. And so what we see here in Psalm 23 today is an example of that happening, the very intent of the Psalter being played out. Psalm 23 is in the very middle of book one of the Psalter, and I count Psalms one and two as the introduction, so I don't count them as part of book one. I count them separate from book one. Um, so we have to remember there's an ex a specific intent in the arrangement uh, within the Psalter. And book one's narrative focuses on the King David. And that's plain to see because every psalm in book one is written, and this is numbers three through 41, every one is written by David with the exception of two, which is uh, psalms number 10 and 33, um, but they're often assumed to be also authored by David since David authored all of the rest of the Psalms in book one. But the overall message in book one is how God has preserved his king. It's about how God has upheld his covenant with David despite the wickedness, brokenness, and oppression of the world, specifically within Israel and the sin that plagues David from within. Furthermore, Psalm 23 is located in a group of psalms that draw the reader to see the sovereignty of God and to trust in his sovereignty. Uh, this group of 10 psalms starts in the 15th psalm and continues through the 24th. So the two prevailing themes that are in book one are that God is sovereign and that God is preserving his anointed one, David, through the trials and troubles caused by sin from outside of David and also from sin within David. And right here's a good place for us to stop and think about this. What are the obstacles that truly keep us from living a life that glorifies God? I'll offer two things. First, the wickedness and the brokenness and the oppression of the world the fact that the way of life that the world tries to push on us is the antithesis of a life that glorifies God. And then the second thing would be our own sin. More simply put, sin from outside and sin from inside. Yes? Yep. It's these two categories of sin that really contribute to the difficulties we experience in life as we attempt to glorify God. Psalms concerning the trials and hardships of David are frequent throughout book one, both before and after Psalm 23. And so that we are seeing in our, so what we're seeing in our text today is that David is reflecting on the love and care that God has for him. He's pausing in the midst of all of these dangers, all of these difficulties, these hardships of life, which are many by the way, David by no means had what we would consider an easy life. It was quite the opposite. But he's stopping in the middle of all that to declare, to declare that he has faith, his hope, and his trust are in God and God alone. So I've titled today's message, 
David places his trust in the provision and protection of the preeminent one. And this message today should be an encouragement to all of us. How often at the first sign of adversity do we abandon the faith that we have and what God is doing in our lives and slip into a negative, doubt, doubtful, faithless attitude? How often do we experience difficulty and almost automatically go straight to woe is me, how difficult things are for me? We abandon faith and trust in God at the very moment that it becomes inconvenient for us to have it. Yet David is pausing here in the midst of all of this hurt, pain, suffering, frustration, struggle, and difficulty to say, look at how my God comforts and cares for me. He provides me with all that I need and protects me. And I know that I can place my confidence in him. And we'll see the nature of the trust that David places in God through the use of two different metaphors today that describe his relationship with God. First, David puts his trust in God as the good shepherd, and we'll see that in verses one through four. And then we'll see David's trust in God as his gracious host in verses five through six. But we need to be careful here. We need to recognize that David is not the subject of this psalm. He's the object. We need to recognize that he's the recipient, the benefactor of God's grace. Remember, the gospel does not focus on man or what man has done or how good man is. The gospel focuses on God and what God has done. And that's consistent with what David writes here today in Psalm 23. And David is finally the subject in his own writing in the last half of verse six, if you look at it real quick, where he says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the only part of a verse where David is the subject in Psalm 23. And at the point that he writes this, it's very clear that uh, what he's writing is the result of what God has done. So keep your focus on God. The second that we allow this thought that God is our servant to creep into our hearts, we make ourselves God and our life gets out of balance because we don't have our priorities in the right place. So let's jump in, starting with verse one. And as we do, I want you to know that your understanding of Psalm 23 depends heavily on your knowledge of shepherding and hosting in ancient Israel. And what I mean by that is that as we dive in and we look at verses one through four, it's vital for you to have knowledge about sheep and the roles and responsibility of, uh, roles and responsibilities of a shepherd. So as we proceed through these verses, I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about sheep. The metaphor of a shepherd is a comparison with which David would have been intimately familiar. After all, Dave, before David was ever king of Israel, he was a shepherd. And we can see that in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, verses 11 and 19, and also 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 15. So let's look at how David places his faith in God as his good shepherd in verse one. 
And verse one says this, it says, a Psalm of David, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. So I wanna take a moment here just to remind all of you to read the superscriptions, okay? They're not part of verse one in most of our English Bibles, but if you look in the Hebrew Bible, a Psalm of David is part of verse one, okay? So I always want y'all to remember the superscriptions are inspired. Please read them whenever you're reading scripture uh, in the Psalms. So immediately we observe that David, uh, uh, that for David, he declares that the Lord is his shepherd. Now, the corollary to this statement is that David is one of the Lord's sheep, and this is how David describes his, uh, the relationship he has uh, with God. And indeed, this would also be true of us as God's people. We are also the Lord's sheep. This metaphor is frequently used in God's word, and it's all over scripture, actually. And this is important because although David has written this psalm, this is actually how God himself has described his relationship with us. Remember, uh, 2 Timothy Chapter three, verse 16, all scripture is God breathed. So even though David is writing this as a description of his relationship with God, this is how God wants us to see our relationship with him. Psalm 28, verses eight and nine say, the Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Psalm 95, seven says, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. But like I said a moment ago, to gain a full understanding of this metaphor and how God cares for us as, as our shepherd, we need to understand that the nature, uh, uh, we need to understand the nature of shepherding and of sheep. Namely, we need to understand that shepherding was a very humble uh, not highly respected line of work in the culture of ancient Israel. And it's right here that I want to pose a question to all of you. What does it say about our God that he would choose a profession of such low respect, of such low prestige to describe his relationship with us? What does that say about the attitude in which he has revealed himself to us and about how he loves us. Furthermore, how should we follow him? Mark 10, 45 says that for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2, verses five through eight says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so I'd like you to turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And I want to read, read along with me, 
verses one through five. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that, it w- that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back from God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Church, this is the God of all creation. And look at the humility with which he, with which he comes to us, with which he has revealed himself to us. We can further see the humbleness with which God cares for us by realizing the nature of sheep themselves. Okay, so remember, we're talking about how God is our shepherd, okay? And so to further understand this humbleness, think about the sheep, all right? Now, I also want you to keep in mind, don't let the humility with which God loves us and cares for us to puff you up. Okay, we need to understand and always remember that the sheep in this relationship represent us. All right, so let's talk about the sheep for a second. Sheep are among the most helpless of animals. They are are utterly incapable of surviving on their own. They're unable to provide for themselves. They can't even defend themselves. They live their lives completely and utterly dependent on their shepherd. But notice what David said as one of God's sheep. Verse one, I shall not want. Now the Hebrew word that's used here actually means lack. So David is saying that under Yahweh's care, he lacks nothing. He has what he needs. And now we have to take this idea of not lacking for what it means. Okay, this isn't the prosperity gospel that's being taught here. And if anyone tells you that you, you will prosper in material and worldly things because you belong to God, that person is lying. God may indeed bless you with abundant wealth, success, or material things, but that is wholly dependent on his will for you. That's not inherently because you belong to him. Deuteronomy chapter two, verse seven. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. Now, I'm pretty sure that as the Israelites were roaming through the wilderness. They were not in chariots made by Mercedes-Benz. So, but the Lord cared for them. The Lord provided for them. He provided for their needs. Think about the manna that, that came from heaven or the water that came from the rock or even the quail that God supplied to them through the wind from the sea. 
and numerous other ways the Lord provided for his people. Thus, if the Lord is your shepherd, he will provide for you. Every single one of the Lord's sheep is precious to him. Scripture makes this clear, and you can tell that by the personal nature of Psalm 23. So this leads me to ask each and every one of you, is the Lord your shepherd? Because there's some of you that are here right now that are hearing my voice, and you're not in the Lord's flock. Psalm 34, verses 9 and 10 say, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Amen. So I implore you, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and the propitiation of your sins to save you from the wrath of the, of the holy God, which is the just penalty for your sins, do that today. Do that now. He was nailed to a cross, died, and then buried, and he rose on the third day as a sure sign that his sacrifice was sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. And this forgiveness is yours if you believe that Christ is sufficient to forgive you of your sins and repent and turn away from your sins. So as we move to verse two, let me say this. Verse one is making sort of a blanket statement that applies to the rest of the psalm. It's the main idea that will be supported by the rest of the verses. But listen to me. You can be rich. You can be healthy. You can have a wonderful life. But if you do not belong to God's flock, you are dirt poor. You have nothing. But if you have not a single possession, maybe you're starving or in poor health, or you're half a breath away from death, and your shepherd is the Lord Jesus Christ, brother, sister, rejoice because you have more wealth than, than the entire world can contain. Mark 8, 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Psalm 32, verses one and two. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. But we have to move on. So let's move on to verse two. And we're still looking at God as the good shepherd. And as we enter into verses two and three, we're gonna see more about how God provides and cares for his sheep. So verse two says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Now sheep, we're gonna talk a little more about sheep again, being the helpless animals that they are, they're very skittish and fearful. They're easily frightened. They run and scatter at the slightest sign of danger. And when they're in this state of fear, they won't eat or drink or sleep. They, they become completely helpless. They're, they're paralyzed by fear. They're quite literally overcome by whatever worry it is that they have or whatever fear it is that they have. They just completely shut down. 
And this is the nature of sheep. Now here we see God's provision for physiological needs, such as food and water, but also needs such as a feeling of security and danger and inner peace and calmness, and even needs such as forgiveness from sins um, or a place of refuge, which are frequent themes found throughout the Psalter. But we, we need to realize that God's provision and care cover all of his sheep's needs, not just needs of a particular category or kind. Man is a being that is intricately woven together as an outer man and an inner man, and, and the two, they, they go together, and God provides for the, both of these aspects of man. As the good shepherd, God does two things. First, he leads his sheep. Second, he feeds his sheep. And both parts of verse two are saying essentially the same thing. And that's a common feature in Hebrew poetry. And that's known as parallelism, where the first half of the verse and the second half of the verse are, are essentially pointing us to the same thing. And in this case, it's that God is leading them to a calm place where they can graze, where they can eat, and also leading them to calm waters where they can drink. So the focus of verse two is not actually what God is providing, but it's how God is providing it through leading and feeding, through shepherding his people. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 34. That's Ezekiel chapter 34. Turn right now. Ezekiel chapter 34, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 15. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself search for my sheep and I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that, I have, been, that, that have been scattered. So, I, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the people who gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and by the inhabited and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing lands. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. And I think here, we need to ask the question, through what means does God lead and feed his people? Now, we might be quick to answer the church or our elders or fellowship with other believers, but the context of Psalm 23 is very personable. It's, it's an intimate relationship between God and each individual sheep. And you can see that through all the uses of the first person pronouns. So I think the better question is, through what means does God personally and individually lead his sheep? 
And the answer to that is, is clearly through his word. And we can see that God provides the sheep with their physical needs as well as comfort and safety and protection in verse two. And remember, the sheep are without fear. They have peace. Their needs have been provided. They do not lack. So God is providing them with peace through his word and the sheep trust their shepherd. Psalm 119, verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Isaiah 54, verses 13 and 14. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. You shall not fear and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Psalm 4, 8, Psalm, the fourth Psalm, verse 8, this is David. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So the peace that the sheep have are given to, uh, is given to them by God. They didn't come by this peace on their own. It was given to them by God. And notice the order. God led them. God provided for them. God protected them. And God granted them peace. The sheep are the recipients of God's grace. All they did was trust God. That's it. They had faith in God. And that's it. But let's move on to verse 3 now and still looking at God's provision and protection as the good shepherd. Verse three says, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, this may come as a huge surprise to you given what we've already said about sheep, but in their helplessness, they're also unable to provide themselves with any sense of direction or the ability to continue in the right direction. They tend to wander off and to go in whatever direction that seems best to them. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 speaks to this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So like verse two, what we're seeing here is parallelism. Both parts of this verse are making the same point. God revives the sheep by setting them on the right path. He restores my soul, David says, using the Hebrew, but the Hebrew word that's used here is the verb return. He returns my soul. So it means that God's taking the sheep and he's putting them in, on the right path. It's, it means that he's restoring their soul, he's returning them to the flock, he's returning them to the right path. It's certainly not uncommon for verse three, though, to be taken as um, talking about salvation. Now, the words used in Hebrew for the, this entire verse could be taken to mean either. Um, and preference uh, for any one meaning over another will not infect your interpretation of Psalm 23. Uh, scripture certainly suppo supports both meanings here. But there again, God does this through his word. The sheep are set on the right path. They find the right way by God shepherding them through his word. Psalm 
uh, the first Psalm, verses one and two. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his, on his law he meditates day and night. So God's word sets him on the right path. Psalm 119, verse one. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Psalm 119, verses 104 through 105. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 37, five. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. So it's very clear that God uses his word to set us on the right path. And as verse three concludes and we move to verse four, we can see that God sets his sheep on the right path for his namesake, that is for his glory. So let's take a look at verse four. Now, we haven't switched yet. We're still talking about uh, the Lord as uh, the, David's good shepherd. It says in verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, shepherds must always remain vigilant over the flock. And as the flock is led from one pasture to another, the shepherd must sometimes bring them through dangerous places. Valleys were particularly dangerous places for the flock to pass through. As you know, valleys are they're, they're low places. They're lower than all of their other surroundings. All right, and they're often between mountains. Such low places are obstructed from the sunlight uh, by their higher surroundings, leaving them perpetually in darkness caused by shadows. And for this reason, valleys are excellent places for predators to attack a flock. What's more, in a valley, predators can attack from the high ground so they can, they can kind of come down on their prey, okay? Um, and the shadow of death is, is likely being used by David to express a situation where death is looming or to convey a time and place of deep darkness or evil. Either way, the idea being conveyed here is that the sheep are passing through the worst possible situation that they can be in. But the command to fear, not to fear, because God is with us, is common throughout Scripture. And this is what David is saying here. He's saying that even though things could not possibly get any worse, I will fear no evil, for God is with me. Proverbs 1.33 says, But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Now, the ESV used that word disaster. Um, the LSB and NASB go with the word evil, which I think is a better translation for Proverbs 1.33. But uh, the point is that they will be without dread of evil. Deuteronomy 31 Verses six through eight says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous. For you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers and give them to give them. 
and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Next in verse four, we see your rod and staff, they comfort me. Now the rod and staff are both tools of the trade for a shepherd in ancient Israel. The rod was probably best described as a, as a club. It was about two feet long and it was typically made of a very hard wood such as oak. And the rod was used to fight off predators such as lions or bears. Don't know if you can imagine getting a fight with a lion or a bear right now, but sometimes that's what the shepherd has to do. So the rod was the shepherd's weapon, if you will. And the shepherd could also use it to direct and discipline the sheep, to reprimand them, so to speak, for trying to leave the flock or go into a dangerous place, what have you. It could be used to warn them, change their direction, or herd them back into the flock, as well as um, to, you know, to, it's kind of like, um, I mean, it's a discipline tool. So he could actually discipline the sheep and teach them not to do whatever behavior they were doing. The staff um, was what most of us normally associate with a shepherd in this time period. It's a longer uh, rod with a, with a crook or a hook-like end. I think when we say shepherd, that's what most of us imagine is the staff. But this was used to rescue sheep that were stuck in thickets or had fallen in holes. Um, it could also be used to ward off snakes, but, but its main purpose was to grab the sheep and pull it out of whatever trouble that it had gotten itself into. Because that's, if you haven't noticed, that's what sheep do. They get themselves into trouble. So, but both of these tools are used by the shepherd to keep his sheep from danger. They're sources of, and they're, they're sources of David, David's comfort. So we ask ourselves, what does God use to protect his sheep? What do, does he use to keep them from danger? What does he use to discipline them? What does he use to comfort them? The word. He uses his word. Psalm 119, one, uh, verse 110. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Psalm 119, verse 133. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Psalm 19, verse 11. Moreover, by them, them being God's word, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Psalm 119, verse 143. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. And let's not forget 2 Timothy 
Chapter three, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Couple more for you. Psalm 119, verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Psalm 119, verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, if you will. And I want to read verses 3 through 11. So follow along with me. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have ha- we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us as we respect us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. So I wanted to bring you to Hebrews 12 here so that you could see the necessity of discipline as it comes to you being one of God's sheep. Why does God discipline us? Obviously, it's because he loves, he loves us, but two reasons stick out here in Hebrews 12, and they're both related. First, we see in verse seven, it's necessary to build perseverance. Discipline is necessary to build perseverance within you. Second, we see in verse 10, it's for our good that we may share in God's holiness. So as we're led by the Lord to our destination, which is the focus of verse six in Psalm 23, perseverance is necessary. The journey to the house of the Lord requires us to walk through many valleys. And following the Lord requires us to be disciplined so that we won't stray to the right or stray to the left, but we will stay fixed on him fixed on God who leads us so that we can share in his holiness. Romans chapter five, verses three through five. 
Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. James chapter 1, verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to all those who love him. What, are we un- what we're to understand here, dear sheeple, is that God comforts us and cares for us on a personal and intimate basis through his word. Certainly, he has other ways of doing this, but the word is how we should be led by by our great God and Savior daily, constantly. So I want to ask you now, are you in God's word daily? Is God your shepherd every day of your life or just on Sundays? Do you follow him every day or do you allow yourself to stray away from the flock? Because let me tell you this. If you belong to his flock and you stray away, he will pull you back into the flock because our God is faithful. He loves you and he prefers to pull you back in using the staff. But I solemnly warn each and every one of you right here, right now. If what is best for you is that God uses the rod, he will knock you back into the flock. He will use it for your good so that you will persevere knowing that he loves you. And church, that's, that should be a comforting thing. That shouldn't be a terrifying thing. God loves us like this. So if you've been straying away, you haven't been getting into the word daily. I urge you, and I, I, I mean, I exhort you, come back to the flock now. Change your daily habits now. Be in the word and follow our shepherd closely. And David certainly put his faith and trust in God. He trusted God to be his shepherd. He trusted that God would provide for his needs. He trusted that God would bring him peace. He trusted that God would set him on the right path. He trusted that God would lead him through the absolute worst and most intense moments of his life. And we need to do the same. But we have to move on now. And so at this point, we've seen how God cares for us, uh, cares for David and indeed all of us as a good shepherd. But now let's look at verse five and six where we'll see how he cares for us as a gracious host. So back to Psalm 23, verses five and six. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So just as we needed to understand uh, the roles and responsibilities of the shepherd in verses one through four, 
We need to understand the roles and the responsibilities of the host in five, through six, five and six. And as you may have observed from reading verses five and six here in Psalm 23, the host actually acted as a servant to his guests. The idea of making yourself at home, um, uh, or in other words, come on over and serve yourself is, is more of a modern idea. Okay, in ancient Israel, if you, you came to somebody's house, they served you like you were a distinguished, a distinguished guest. And so hosting in ancient Israel was a labor of love and care. And uh, there's a couple of good places in scripture that we can look at that illustrate this. Uh, turn with me to John chapter two. John chapter two. And let's take a look at verses one through 11. John chapter two, verses one through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus, was, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars um, for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they, so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the, the water now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his, sign, of the, of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay, one more. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. So I want y'all to see the importance of, of serving um, as a host in ancient Israel. So turn with me to Luke chapter 10. And we're gonna read verses 38 through 42. Luke chapter 10, 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had her sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted, distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. So what I want you to see in these verses is the importance that a host places on serving his guests, okay? Notice the concern in each section of scripture that we just read uh, that the hosts have for their guests. In John 2, the concern was that the guests would have enough wine to drink, that their cups would be filled. In Luke 10, Martha was so concerned with serving, she's missing the Lord's teaching, okay? So, so hosting was a very big deal in ancient Israel. But in both of, both of these 
passages illustrate for us the care and comfort of his guests. Is the, that's the primary concern of the host, the care and comfort for his guests. So let's take a look at verse five in Psalm 23. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, one thing I want you to understand as we move from looking at God as our good shepherd to looking at God as our gracious host is that the theme isn't changing from verses one through four to now in verses five through six. As you can probably tell, the idea of God providing and caring for his people and providing and caring abundantly for that matter is still in the background here in Psalm 23. But who is the subject of verse five? The one doing the action is still God, just like in verses one through four. I don't know if y'all noticed that, so I'm calling your attention now. All of these verses, God is doing all of the action. It's God that's acting in all of these. Like I said, we're not gonna see that change till the second half of verse six. Um, So God's preparing the table. God's anointing David's head with oil. God is keeping David's cup full. And the focus of this verse is not on David. Just as the focus of your life should not be on you, but on God. The gospel is not focused on man, but rather it's focused on God and what God has done through Christ. Thus, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows is is a much more compact and concise way of repeating verses one through four. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, reiterates verses two and four, the idea of safety, protection, comfort, and peace, even in the worst circumstances. You anoint my head with oil, is repeating, the, uh, repeating verse three, reviving the soul and setting on the right path. It was common for a host to anoint his guest heads with oil after completing a long journey. Uh, This was a way of refreshing your guests, okay? Your guests has traveled from a far, far off land. Remember, they're walking, not driving usually, so they're probably pretty tired and they probably smell bad when they arrive. You put some oil on their forehead, makes them smell better, makes them feel better, okay? Um, Oils often had a pleasant fragrance, uh, which would no doubt be be welcomed by a weary traveler. Uh, So we move to my cup overflows, and this brings our attention back to the roles and responsibility of a host, a good host would keep his guest's cup filled. In verse one, David stated that he would not lack. Here he's going beyond that. He's saying that God has blessed him abundantly. His cup is overflowing. Uh, Many times in scripture, a cup is used to describe one's portion or lot in life. For example, Isaiah 51, chapter, uh, chapter 51, verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the, from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl and the cup of staggering. Psalm 16, verse five. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Matthew 20, verses 22 through 23, Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. 
Are you able to drink from the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. And he said to, said to them, you will drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it's for those whom it has been prepared by my father. So a cup is often one's life, where, the, where that person is in life, or the, or the destiny that they, they are facing. And I think this is what David means when he says that his cup is overflowing. He has been greatly and abundantly blessed by the Lord. I don't think he's talking about material wealth, though. This refers to God's grace and, the, and, and God's presence in his life, okay? So, so when David's looking at all the blessing that he's having here and his cup overflowing, it's not because he's the king of Israel, he has all these riches or what have you. It's because he knows God. God is his treasure, folks. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. So David's cup is overflowing because God has been his shepherd and David has trusted him. And that's what brings us to verse six. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Now, using Hebrew meanings, this verse could literally be translated as good things or benefit or welfare instead of goodness and goodness or kindness or mercy uh, where it says mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Quite simply, the benefits of knowing God and being one of his children will follow David for all of his days. And he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I think that's pretty clear. So I just want to take a moment to remind you of the words that Paul wrote in Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 26. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, which uh, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and for your joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. So as we close, I want to remind you all that Christ is the fulfillment of Scripture. He's the fulfillment of this very psalm that we've looked at today. And while I think that it's clear that we can put our trust, hope, faith, and confidence in God, how does one do that? How does one do that? And the Lord answers this question quite clearly in Matthew chapter six. Um, and I read it already today, so I'm not gonna read it again. But verse 33, remember, he said, the Lord knows that you have all these needs. But he says this, instead of worrying about all these things, he says this, verse 33 in Matthew six, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Don't worry about all these things that are going on in your life. Put your eyes on Christ. 
Trust him. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And God will take care of all these worries that you have. He knows what you need. He knows. Now trust him to provide it. It was Richard Sibbs, a well-known Puritan and author of the Bruce Reed that says, trust is nothing else but the strength of hope. And the nature of hope is to expect that which faith believes. So brothers, sisters, your, your trust in God goes back to your faith in him, okay? And let me tell you something else. Worry, listen to this, worry reveals your idols. So instead of worrying about all of those things, take the advice of apostle, the Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter four, verses eight through nine. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So just a couple more things I wanna take a quick look, look at and then we're gonna, we're gonna end it, okay? Turn with me to John chapter 10. Turn with me to John chapter 10. And let's look at verses 11 through 18 in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as a father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Brothers, sisters, he's the good shepherd. Place your trust in Christ Jesus. Okay, one more. You're like, oh man, when's it gonna end? One more. Uh, John chapter 14. You're real close to it. Just go to John chapter 14 real quick. Okay, let's just take a quick look at verses one through seven in John chapter 14. Let, your heart, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Brothers, sisters, he's our gracious host. Place your trust, your faith, your confidence, and your hope in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for this time that we've gathered today in your name and your glory. Lord, help us to see the ways that our trust, that our faith, that our confidence, that our hope fails in you, Lord. Bring those to light in both our hearts and our minds, Lord, so that we can turn away, so that we can be revived in you, Lord, so that we can fully place our faith and trust in you. Father, we love you so much, and I thank you for all of my brothers and sisters. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.